Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 7. We will finish chapter 7 this morning and then begin chapter 8, um, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. This morning we come to a section of the Gospel of Mark that I believe is intended to remind us of this. That because of Jesus, there is coming a day when all will be well. Say that again. For those of us who trust in Jesus, there is a day coming when all will be well. And I'm eager to share this passage with you because I think in October of 2020, this is a timely reminder. Some of us need to be reminded that there is hope beyond election day regardless of the outcome. Some of us need to be reminded that there is hope beyond the pandemic, even if that end is far away. Some of you are overwhelmed because of your position in life, be it in your work or your home, your parenting or your marriage. Maybe you need this reminder this morning That for those who know Christ, there is coming a day when all will be well. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, that's not the heading above Mark 7, starting in verse 31, is it? The heading in your Bible probably says, Jesus heals a deaf man. This morning, we are going to consider this miracle of Jesus. A man who is deaf and mute, yet his ears are opened. His tongue is given new life. It's amazing. And I just want to encourage you, I always want to push you when we come to passages like this, to not just think this is what happened, I heard about it in Sunday school, but to stand in awe that a man who could not hear was given hearing, and a man who could not speak was given speech. We're going to consider the miracle of Jesus, but what I want to help you see this morning is that there's more here than simply another miracle story. And Mark has told us the story with the aim of pointing us to this reality that because of Jesus, the one who came and who can open closed ears and loose tied tongues, because of Jesus, there is a day coming when all will be well. This week as I've spent my time thinking about Mark 7 and what I believe Mark is pushing us towards in this text, I was reminded of that common four-word summary Maybe you know it. This four-word summary of the story of the Bible or of the course of human history. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Maybe that's something you can take with you this morning. I put it there on your notes. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's a familiar way of remembering the work of God, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. It starts with creation. The reminder that in the beginning, God made all things and he made all things well. So think of Genesis 1, verse 31. This is after the work of creation. It says, God saw everything he had made and behold, he said it was very good. God created all things and it was well. It was very good. But of course, we know it didn't stay that way. Something changed. Through the sin of Adam and Eve, the world, and every person who would ever be born took on the curse of sin, the fall. 
Because of sin, we live in a fallen world, a world where people are born as sinners and we all live as sinners. It's a reality that explains a lot, doesn't it? This is why we have political division, lying, racism. This is why every one of us struggle to obey God. Do you wonder why you struggle day in and day out to obey? It's because of this. It's because of the fall. And of course, it's because of the fall that we live in a world where sickness and disease exist. We live in a world where a pandemic is a possibility. Where poverty and death are ever-present realities. It's hard to think about all these things. But as Christians, it should help us to realize that there's a reason. There's a way our world, there's a reason our world is the way it is. And there's a, a reason your heart has the tendencies it does. It's because of the curse of the fall. But of course we know that God in his mercy had a plan to redeem fallen world. Creation, fall, redemption. This is where we get good news. That in his mercy, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is good news. Jesus came, God in flesh, bearing our sin, taking our curse, so that all who believe in him have the hope of eternal life and eternal joy. We have the promise that because of Jesus, we can be changed. We can be set free. And that leads to the final thing. Creation, fall, redemption. And I can never get this finger up. Consummation. The hope that a day is coming when God, through Christ, will gather all those who are his and we will live with him for eternity. In addition to that, he has promised to restore and make all things new. So Stephen, tell us what passage comes to mind. Revelation 21, right? Stephen, our good brother, reminds us of this passage and the hope that it has often. Heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It will be his people, and God himself will be them, with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. No crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Which brings us back to where we started. This hope that for those who are in Christ, a day is coming when all will be well. We live in a world where we live under the curse of sin, but we can look forward. And I, what I want to help you see is that I believe this is what Mark is pushing us towards through this particular miracle in Mark chapter 7. Before we read the story, let me say a couple things about the context. Let's get, our, get ourselves back into the framework of Mark chapter 7. It's been a week since you were there, most likely. You'll remember from previous weeks that Jesus spent a lot of time in and around the, the region of Galilee. He's been ministering there, performing miracles, interacting with religious leaders. But he was constantly trying to get away. To go to have a time of rest and a time where he could be just with his disciples and, and to teach these men. So we saw last week that the time came, he needed to get away, and he went to an unexpected place. He goes to the region, to the city of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. Tyre is a city 
outside of the borders of where the people of Israel were living. It's a Gentile area. And not only is it a Gentile area, a land outside of where the people of God lived, but it's a place that's known in particular for its idolatry and paganism and its oppression of the people of God. So we talked last week about how the Old Testament constantly used Tyre as a symbolic city of evil. It's an odd place for Jesus to go for a retreat. But he went there for reasons, and we talked about those last week. Partially, it's likely he went there just because he could get away. Many of the crowds would not follow him there. That's a practical reason, but I think the reason was bigger than that. And that Jesus also went there to show his disciples, these men who he was training, who he would send out to go into all the world. He took these men to a region where there were people that they despised and began to show them, I came for them too. So we talked last week about the healing of the Syrophoenician woman. A woman who most Jews would not look at, much less interact with. But Jesus showed compassion. And he healed her and demonstrated to his disciples the gospel is bigger than Israel. The gospel, after the death and resurrection, will go to all people. Because Jesus came to save people of every race and ethnicity and nation. So Jesus is outside of the normal place where he ministered taking his disciples outside of their comfort zone. And that sets us up for what we see as we start reading in Mark 7, starting in verse 31. So I hope you have your Bibles and you'll follow along. We're going to read verses 31 to 37. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. After looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged the crowd to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he does all things well. He even makes deaf hear and the mute speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Ask God that he'll add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Well, as we come to this passage, I think it's always worth mentioning that this is one of those passages that's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. This miracle and the description of this miracle is unique to the Gospel of Mark. Now, Matthew alludes to this period of time, but in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us that when Jesus came to this area, large crowds came to him and Jesus healed many. So we read in Matthew chapter 15 that The crowd saw mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. So Matthew gives us this big picture, this macro level. Jesus came and many people were healed. Mark does something different, and they're not contradictory. Mark zeroes in on one particular case. 
Jesus' interaction with one man. And also, and I believe this is just as important, he focuses in on the response of the crowd to the work of Jesus with this one man. That's where we're headed. But before we get there, let's talk about verse 31, about where Jesus is and how he got there. This is one of those verses that if you're like me, when you're reading through the scriptures and you're not like just digging in, you're just going to read through this, this verse and move on. But this is a time when we have just to consider what, why is this included and is it significant? I already mentioned that Jesus in the previous section was in the city of Tyre. That's where he healed the Syrophoenician woman. It says now that he's back near the Sea of Galilee, but this time he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So you can picture the map of Israel, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus over on the eastern side. Verse 31, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Like I said, you read that, probably not helpful, right? I don't know where those places are. Let me, let me try to get a, a, a travel log in your head, okay? The region of Galilee is here, the Sea of Galilee is here. Tyre is about 25 miles northwest. Should I turn around? I don't know. It's northwest, okay? It's on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, about 25 miles north of that is the city of Sidon. Jesus ends up way over here, east of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a direct route. It's as if I told you, hey, we're going to take a trip to Houston. So we're going to head up north to Waco. And then we're going to flip around back to Houston. It's an unusual travel log. And we're not told anything in any of the Gospels about what happens between Sidon and the Decapolis, this 10-city region, Deca, 10, Opolis City, 10 cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So why is it important? Mark doesn't tell us exactly, but let's consider that all this time, Jesus is in the region of the Gentiles. It's not that he just went to Tyre and then he headed to the Decapolis, but he is staying in this region. It seems for a prolonged period, that's about 150 miles of walking. He's there for a while. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. And perhaps, I think likely, this is him just communicating to them. Jesus came for you too. Jesus came first to the Jews, but he didn't come only for the Jews. He came to make salvation available to all people. We spent time on this last week. This emphasis continues that Jesus' heart is not only for the nation of Israel, but for all nations. So Jesus goes into this region, the Decapolis, which is also a Gentile area. And maybe you think, I think I've heard that one before. And if you were with us, and you have, because back in chapter 5, Jesus went to this region before. Remember chapter 5, Jesus tells his disciples, they're on the western side. Some of, you, some of you are following, some of you are just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Jesus spent most of his time on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. There was a time when he told his disciples, we need to go across. So they head across the sea. That's when the storm came and the disciples were fearful. Jesus calms the storm and rebukes them for their lack of faith. They have this horrendous night on the sea. 
They land on the shore, and remember when they land on the shore, immediately when they land, a crazy man, a naked man, starts running towards them, a man possessed by demons. Jesus casts the demons out of this man, thousands of them, into a herd of pigs. They run off the cliff, and the people of the region come, and what do they say to Jesus? Do you remember? Get out of here. Leave. We don't want you in the Decapolis. They're overwhelmed by a man who could do this. And so Jesus is only there for a few hours. The man who he healed asks Jesus, let me go with you. Let me go back across with you. And let me read for you, just remind you of the interaction Jesus had with this man. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Jesus was getting into the boat and the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And Jesus went, or excuse me, the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Everyone marveled. Is that a big rabbit trail? It's a little rabbit trail. What's the point for where we are today? Jesus returns to the region of the Decapolis. He's only been there once and only for a few hours. But when he goes there, according to the Gospel of Matthew, crowds gather. People flock to Jesus knowing that he is a man of power and a man who can heal. How did they know of Jesus? I would argue in part. It was because of the faithfulness of this man who Jesus had sent and said, go and tell them all. And he went and he was a faithful missionary to his region. And when Jesus came, they said, this is the one who we've heard about. Perhaps this serves as a reminder to us to be faithful where we are. To proclaim all that the Lord has done for us. So that people can see and recognize Jesus as the one who can heal. Jesus returns to the area and the people know him, no doubt in part because of the faithfulness of this one man. The Gospel of Matthew says that there were great crowds there. But Mark zeroes in on this one story. Verse 32 They brought a man to him who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So friends or family members of this man, knowing and believing that Jesus can heal, bring their brother, friend to Jesus, a man who can't hear and who can't speak well. The ESV says that he had a speech impediment. I've always thought it was ironic that the word we use to describe someone who has difficulty speaking is so hard to say. Maybe that's the test. Can you say impediment? No? Okay. Well, there's the problem. Michelle told me nobody would laugh. (laughs) Mark tells us that the man cannot hear and he cannot speak well, mainly perhaps because he can't hear. They bring him to Jesus it's interesting to note that the word that Mark uses in the Greek language, so remember the, the Bible was written originally in Greek. We have a translation. Thankfully, we have a translation, I should say. 
But the, that word in the Greek, it's, for those who read Greek would notice this is a word that's not common. In fact, it's only used one other time in all the Bible. And the Bible speaks a lot about people who can't speak well or who are mute. But this word is only used in one other place in all of Scripture. It's in Isaiah chapter 35. I think it's important for us to pause for a second and consider this. And hopefully as we go through the message, you'll understand why this is significant. In Isaiah 35, we come to a transition in the book of Isaiah. The chapters leading up, particularly chapters 28 through 34, are all pronouncements of judgment. Isaiah is going to the people of God and to all the nations, proclaiming the judgment of God is coming. There will be destruction and turmoil. But when we get to Isaiah 35, there's a shift and there's a promise of hope. So after these really long and detailed declarations of judgment, Isaiah starts to describe a time when things will change. And I want you to hear what Isaiah says about that time that's coming. So reading from Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse 1, just listen to the imagery. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon, which is known for its fruitfulness, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Now listen to this. It says, strengthen weak hands. Make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. In that time, the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And here's where we see that word, the only other time in Scripture. This word for those who can't speak. Isaiah says to his people, there's going to be a time of destruction, of desolation, and of judgment. But there's coming a day when all things will be restored. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And in that day, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the mute will sing for joy. A day is coming when all things will be made right. And he's pointing people past the pain to a day of hope. Now I'm going to push pause on that and take us back to Mark chapter 7. We're going to come back to Isaiah 35, but just hold that thought for a minute. This man who is mute and deaf has been brought to Jesus. We're told that his, those who brought him begged with Jesus. They pleaded with him, just lay your hand on him. See, they believed that if Jesus was to, even just to touch him, that he would be well. They pleaded, just God, just, Jesus, just lay your hand on him. Jesus does more than that. Look at verse 33, how Jesus responds. He takes the man aside from the crowd privately. Now just picture this, okay? He takes his fingers and he puts them in the man's ears. And then he spits and touches the man's tongue. Even before COVID, it's gross, right? <laughs> Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs. And he says to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. 
There's a lot here. It describes how Jesus handled the situation. You know, in other places, often in the Gospels, if someone needs to be healed, Jesus just speaks. Be well. He just says a word. But in this particular case, there's a lot more going on, isn't there? And you can go and you can read a lot about um, why Jesus may have done these things. Fingers in the ears, the touching of the tongue. I want to argue that more than anything else, it's all a sign of the compassion of Jesus towards man who was in need. In that he slows down, is purposeful, and deals intimately with this man. And consider who he is. I'll remind you again, they're in a Gentile region. This is not where Jewish people hung out, much less teachers. It's a Gentile man, one who his disciples may be again cautioning Jesus to keep his distance, but Jesus goes near to the man. He's showing his disciples once again that a new time has come. He takes the man and he pulls him away from the crowd. Again, showing his compassion. This man can't hear and can't speak. And it's likely that for this man's entire life, he had been pushed to the side. This is not a time that's known for treating those with disabilities well. They were a nuisance. We didn't know, they didn't know how to deal with them. And often, their disability was attributed to a curse. So they were shunned. Yet Jesus doesn't push him away. Quite the opposite. And Jesus doesn't even just touch him. Jesus pulls him aside. Now, like I said, lots of speculation. Some have said that Jesus does the things he does as a sort of sign language. He touches his ears, the place that needs healing, and he touches his tongue. It's possible. Some have pointed out that he may be um, imitating the actions of common healers during that day, that Jesus was signing to the man, I'm going to do what the healers do. I'm going to heal you. It's also commonly known that during this time there was a belief that the saliva of a powerful person had healing powers. So you can read pages and pages and books of why people believe Jesus might have done these things. The, the scriptures don't tell us. But I can't get past the thought that Jesus slows down Crowds of people are coming to Jesus. We're told that during this time, he healed many, many people. Yet in this case, he slows down. He doesn't just pronounce healing, but he pulls the man aside. And he deals with him in a very personal way. He could have just spoke a word, but he slows down. He touches. And then he speaks. We see in verse 34, Jesus looks up to heaven he sighs and says, Ephatha, that is to be opened. So picture the scene. Standing in front of this man. No doubt this man, put yourself in his shoes. His world has been quiet for years. He can't express himself. And now he's standing in front of this man, probably anxious, maybe excited, probably a little fearful. Jesus has touched his ears, touched his tongue. Jesus looks up to heaven and he groans. He sighs. Again, no explanation from Mark. 
but perhaps the sigh and look to heaven are Jesus acknowledging before the Father his sympathy for this man's condition and his desire to show compassion. I don't think we consider often enough how difficult it must have been for Christ on a human level to see the effects of sin. The Bible tells us it is through Jesus that all things were created and created well. But now Jesus is looking in the face of a man who, because of the curse of sin, not maybe his own, but the curse in general, has suffered. Jesus looks in the eyes of this man who has suffered greatly, and he groans, acknowledging the pain. But then he speaks. Aphatha. Mark records the actual word, the Aramaic word that Jesus spoke. This is the actual word, whether I'm saying it right or not, <laughs> the actual word that Jesus spoke. But he's writing to a people who did not speak Aramaic, and so he translates, and we can be thankful for that. The word that means be opened. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And I'm going through this slowly because we should not rush past the miracle. Because you can't do this. You can't put your finger in someone's ears. You can't put your finger in Jason's ear. He's had an ear infection and fixed that thing. You can't do that. But Jesus heals. We're told that his tongue was loosed. Um, depending on what translation you may have, it may say that it was released or broken free. It's the same word that's used often so think about Philippians when the jailer, when they're in jail, Paul and Silas are in jail and they're singing and we're told that their chains are loosened. It's the same words. His, the chains that were on his tongue were broken. He didn't need a speech therapist or time to practice. It was instant. He could speak plainly and he could hear himself speak. A reminder of the power of Jesus, the one who speaks in wind and wave obey him. The one who speaks in the land can walk the one who speaks and demons have to leave. He can speak and tongues can be set free and ears opened. And I want to encourage you to stand in awe on a couple of levels. One, that God can do these things. And two, that the God who can do these things came and lived among us. God didn't only promise to make all things well from a distance. But he came and he touched suffering people. He acknowledged the pain of the fall, and he heals. And of course, we should always remember that, in a sense, the miracles of Jesus serve as pictures of what God does for us spiritually. He is the one who can open the blind eyes of our hearts. He is the one who can open ears to hear the truth. He's compassionate and kind and opens our eyes to see his beauty and to obey his commands. So don't grow callous, church, to the power of God displayed in the miracles of Jesus, even if you can read them in 15 seconds. Slow down. Be in awe. That said, I don't think that is the only or maybe even the primary reason that this miracle is recorded. I think we see more in the response of the crowd so look at verse 36. Jesus charges the crowd, these people who see this miracle, he charges them to tell no one. And he continued to charge them, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has, 
done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And if you've not been with us, this passage may seem odd. And if you have been with us, it probably still seems odd. But we've seen this over and over. Jesus heals someone and he says, don't tell anybody. And the reason is because Jesus didn't come primarily to be a physical healer. The reason Jesus came was so that he could be a sacrifice for sins. So Jesus wants people to see him as the Savior, and that comes primarily after the death and resurrection. He does miracles to, to show who he is. But that's not the primary reason he came. And so over and over when he heals people, he says, don't tell anyone. But we see this crowd, they, they don't obey. It says he charges or he commands, and he does so repeatedly, but they don't listen. Instead, this, Mark says that they, they zealously, they passionately proclaimed, the same word that we use for preaching. They went out and they made it known. And it's never appropriate for us to applaud someone's disobedience to Christ. <laughs> but I think their actions should be instructive. What we see are people who were so in awe of what Jesus did that they couldn't help but speak. They were unable to keep it to themselves. And so I'll ask you the question, church, how about you? For those of us who name the name of Christ, we've experienced something far greater than physical healing. We've been set free from our sins, given the hope of eternal life. The word of Jesus, we've been forgiven. Yet how often are we silent? timid, neglectful, struggling to speak of what Christ has done for us. Think about the contrast between the people in this story and perhaps your own witness. They were told not to tell, and yet they couldn't help it. They had to speak. We are told that we must tell, and yet often we don't. This passage should be a reminder to us of how we should respond to the work of Jesus. We should be overwhelmed by what Jesus has done and we should desire to tell all. Mark says the crowd zealously proclaimed what Jesus had done. And then he tells us the content of their message, what they said, what they were saying. They were astonished beyond measure. When was the last time you were astonished beyond measure over what God has done for you? Or astonished beyond measure. And then they preached a two-point sermon. He does all things well, which is to say, he does everything perfectly, right and good. Again, the echo of Genesis 1:31. He created all things and he said they are very good. God does all things well. This declaration gets to the heart of who Jesus is. He is God and he is perfect in all of his ways. And I don't think they were thinking in huge terms. They were just talking about the fact that he was healing people, but their words were bigger than they even knew, proclaiming the perfection of Christ. And then they give an example. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And it's at this point where I think we see so clearly the connection back to Isaiah chapter 35. Not only has Mark used a word that's unique to these two passages, but he references, he's the one, this is the one who can even do these things. 
Through this reaction, he shows that Jesus is the one fulfilling the promises and the prophecies of Isaiah. The miracle proves who Jesus is. He's the one God promised who will usher in the fulfillment of all the promises of God. The miracles that Jesus did were not random, and Mark's recording of this response is not random. It points us to this greater reality. Jesus was showing through his miracles that he is the promised one and the one who has come to make all things new. We know the miracles had a purpose. Remember John the Baptist when he was in prison? He started asking questions. So in Matthew chapter 11, we read that when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, John sent word by his disciples and said to him, saying to Jesus, John the Baptist asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another one? Are you the one? Jesus answered in this way. Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus says, if you want to know that I am the one that was promised, look at what I've done. This is the proof. I am the one. And we see that in our passage as well. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the one who comes to make all things well. This is why I believe Mark, by the inspiration of the Spirit, recorded this text and recorded it the way he did. A reminder for the people of God that Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment of the promises of God, bringing blessing, joy, and salvation. And the day is drawing near when the kingdom that Jesus brought in part will come in full. I've already read the first part of Isaiah 35 for you. Let me pick back up and then finish it. The promise of what comes, what Jesus is bringing. It says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall be to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion, no threat will be there. Nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They will not be found there. The redeemed will walk there. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee. Sounds a lot like Revelation 21, doesn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. There's so much to learn from the miracles of Jesus. But I think Mark recorded this particular account to remind us of who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the guarantee that all the promises of God will come true. 
That for those who believe in Christ, we can look forward to the full arrival of the kingdom of God, the day when all will truly and eternally be well. Before we close this, let's consider some implications. First, let me make this clear because I have not up to this point. We keep saying a day is coming when all will be well. A day when we will be restored and made new. But you have to hear this. This is only a promise for those who are forgiven of their sins through Jesus Christ. See, on that day when Jesus comes to once and for all make all things right, he will gather those who are his, those who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins. But all those who have not trusted him will be separated to everlasting judgment. So when we say all will be well, this is a message of hope for the church, for the people of God. So the question for each of you is, is this your hope? Have you been reconciled to God? Because because of the fall, you were born in sin, and because of your sin, you were born an enemy of God. And the only way that you are restored and reconciled to God is by repenting of your sins and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you repent and you believe, then these promises are for you. That all will be well. This is the hope. And for us as the church, it's a reminder that this is a message that must be shared. Because God forbid we celebrate that all will be well, but we don't share the message with others. Right now, there are people living in uncertain and anxious times. Your neighbors and coworkers are scared of what will happen next. And many of them don't even recognize the seriousness of the situation they're in. We have a message that can bring hope that Jesus heals and saves. So he must speak. Let's be like the one who Jesus sent out and said, tell them what the Lord has done for you. And when Jesus came back, many recognized him. I said at the start, some of us need to be reminded that there's hope beyond election day. Some of you I know are given to fear and worry. Some of us need to be reminded there's hope beyond the pandemic. And some of you haven't even had time to worry about those things because there's turmoil in your own heart. Can I remind you that even when things around you or within you are chaotic, you can cling to Jesus and be safe knowing that he will make all things well. You can trust him. So we go again to the words of Isaiah. I think this is a good place to end. Strengthen weak hands. Make firm, feeble knees. Say to those of anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee. For those of us who are in Christ, there is coming a day when all will be well. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Let us not grow weary in doing good. 
for in due season we will reap if we do not faint. Take heart, all will be well.